Welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host and number one Sowell man, Alan Woolen. This is episode 19. Who says reading Thomas Sowell can't be fun? I'm a soul man. I'm a soul man. Are you a soul man? When I was reading Sowell's 1993 Inside American Education, there was only one chapter in that book about affirmative action, and I never expected to get caught up on the subject the way I have. But while reading that chapter and listening to the many Sowell interviews on the topic available on YouTube, most from decades ago, I had an epiphany. Our culture is still stuck right smack in the middle of this long-standing cultural battle. I don't know if I'm suffering from a severe case of confirmation bias, but it's hard for me to open the newspaper these days without coming across an article about affirmative action and its many diverse offshoots. Here are just a few examples. Example number one. Right now, the Supreme Court is hearing the case Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and the University of North Carolina which accuses both schools of discrimination against Asians and whites in favor of blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans. This case is directly challenging the legitimacy of affirmative action in higher education. Later in the show, we will be speaking with an economist who was one of the expert witnesses in this case. Example number two. A few weeks ago, MIT announced it was bringing back the requirement that students take the SAT or ACT exams in order to be considered for admission to MIT. I talked about this in episode 18. This is also an affirmative action story, albeit indirectly, because the only reason that academic testing was being dropped in the first place was because such testing worked against affirmative action policies. Example number three. Exam high schools like Stuyvesant in New York and Lowell in San Francisco are dropping their admissions exams and are in the process of devising alternative admissions criteria in order to engineer a more racially diverse student body. This, too, is affirmative action in action. Example number four. Just a few days ago, the American Bar Association announced it was considering no longer recommending that law schools require applicants to take the LSAT exam in order to get admitted. It was just a few weeks ago in episode 18 that I was saying the LSAT was required to get into law school, and now they're even changing their minds about that, all for the sake of affirmative action. Do you see how quickly things are changing in our society? It's becoming hard to keep up. Oh, here's another story I heard on NPR just the other day, which really surprised me. This one is good, really good. 
I am truly impressed with the ingenuity of the people who came up with these intellectual gymnastics. Here's the headline. College Board to Give Students Adversity Score Based on Social and Economic Factors. This story is so good, I just have to play it for you. This clip is from NPR. The College Board is adding an extra score to the SAT, but this one has nothing to do with vocabulary or math. It's meant to quantify a college applicant's social and economic background. Anya Kamenetz from our education team has been following this story. She joins us now. And Anya, to tell us what this new score is exactly. Hi, Audie. Yeah, they're calling it the Environmental Context Dashboard, and it puts together factors like household income in a student's neighborhood, whether they live in a rural area or a city or even the local crime rate. And they put it all together into a score from zero to 100, with 100 being the most disadvantaged. Why this approach? Why now? So the SATs have been around for almost 100 years, and the scores that students get have always been heavily correlated to family income and level of education of their parents, not to mention with race. And this is being seen as a problem, especially in today's climate, when we're having what seems like a society-wide conversation about fairness and opportunity in higher education, as you saw with the admissions scandal we've all been hearing about with wealthy families bribing and cheating their way into schools. And the SAT, therefore, is under pressure. Um, Hundreds of colleges, actually, in recent years have dropped both uh, the SAT and the ACT uh, made it test optional because they believe that with high school high school grades, it's just as good a measurement and it enables them to open up their doors to students from a wider range of backgrounds. I understand the College Board actually did some testing before they rolled this out. What did they learn? Right. So they spent the last year piloting this tool at 50 colleges, including Yale and Michigan. And these colleges say that it gave a boost to disadvantaged applicants and so that this might be a way to identify undiscovered talent. Um, For example, your SAT score might look unimpressive on its own, but if you compare it to your classmates and you outperform them by a wide margin, maybe you're a very adept student after all. And David Coleman, the president of the College Board, he says his mission's really big. He says it's nothing less than to restore people's faith in the idea of a level playing field. We're at a moment in this country where a lot of people think if they're born in a certain condition that they're never going to make it to the top of our society. And and the problem is, given what's happening with mobility, is they're right. Is this new score actually going to address critics' concerns, though? You know, I, I don't think it's going to convince everybody. Uh, I talked to Todd Rose at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and he compared the SAT test with its bell curve of results to the 19th century pseudoscience uh, phrenology. It's phrenology, but we've added an adversity score to it. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't really change the underlying problem. that bumps on your head don't correspond to ability. So the idea that you can add a adversity or any other measurement of background is, is going to make up for the flaws, what he sees as the, as the flaws in the test, um, doesn't really hold water. And and Todd Rose's point is that colleges shouldn't just be comparing students to each other, but that we should have more real-world style assessments of whether students can actually do the kind of work that is required in college, as well as more opportunities for students of all different abilities and backgrounds to shine and to reach their full potential. That's Anya Kamenetz from NPR's Ed Team. Thank you. Thank you, Audie. So basically, the college board, the people who administer the SAT exam, will be giving test takers up to an additional 100 points if they live in neighborhoods with low incomes, low educational achievement, high crime rates, and other social pathologies. I don't mean to be overly blunt here, but essentially, they're giving you extra points if you live in a lousy neighborhood. 
And I can understand why they are doing it this way. It makes it really easy. All they need to do is plug in your zip code and voila, out pop some extra points on your SAT. It's a simple and clean algorithm. I haven't decided yet if this kind of stuff makes me laugh or if it makes me cry or both. I really got a kick out of that professor from the Harvard School of Education who compared the SAT to 19th century phrenology. In case you're not familiar with the term, phrenology refers to a crackpot theory from the 1800s with which people believed they could figure out a person's character and mental ability from the shape of their skull. Well, I guess crackpot theories are alive and well at the Harvard School of Education if professors there are comparing the 100-year-old time-tested SAT exam, which the scholars at MIT just endorsed, to a long-ago debunked pseudoscience. In Inside American Education, Sowell did warn us about the low academic achievement and intellectual standards present at American schools of education. Now I know why. But affirmative action isn't just manifesting itself in the educational context. I'm seeing it in television advertising as well. The only TV show my wife and I watch together is This Is Us on NBC. I have to admit, it's a great show. They're in season six now, which is the final season, and we've been watching it since season one. If you're not familiar with the show, check it out. I think you'll be glad you did. But anyway, the only bad thing about watching This Is Us is the ridiculous number of television commercials we have to endure. It's off the charts. NBC must be making a fortune off that show because it almost feels like there are more commercial minutes than actual show minutes. One day I'm going to time it just to find out. But what really strikes me is the racial composition of the actors in the commercials. I estimate that approximately 60% of the actors in the commercials are African American, which is quite an astounding figure for a country which is only 13% African-American. And when you do see a white character in one of the commercials, they are often portrayed as the spouse of a black character in an interracial marriage. At this point, I don't think there is anyone who disputes the idea that American advertising agencies are practicing their own form of affirmative action in their selection of actors appearing in television commercials. At this point, The ratios are so out of whack with proportional representation that it can only be described as repertory representation. But here's the critical question in all this. Is picking actors for a television commercial the same as picking students for a university? Let's pause for a minute and really think about this. Are American colleges and universities in effect casting their student bodies the way advertising agencies are casting their commercials? Sowell touches on this in Chapter 6 of Inside American Education. He talks about how administrators like to point out how wonderfully diverse their campuses are. Racial diversity looks great in the photos of the admissions brochure. Sowell says this. At the University of California at Berkeley, for example, where the entering freshman class has been described as, quote, wonderfully diverse, unquote, Mm -hmm. Because the, quote, class closely reflects reflects the actual ethnic distribution of California high school students. These are your words. More than 70% of black students fail to graduate. Yes. Why? Because they're mismatched with Berkeley. 
That is, these students, the average black student at Berkeley is above the national average on test scores. It's just that the average white student is further above the national average, and the average Asian student further above than the white students. And so in that atmosphere, these students who have every qualification to succeed are artificially turned into failures. And the only beneficiary of that is the University of California at Berkeley. Because what they've effectively done is rented these bodies for window dressing for a few years. And then when they're through with them, they're put aside. A new bunch of bodies are brought in. Are colleges casting their freshman classes for ideological appeal instead of academic excellence and preparedness? I may be wrong about this, but it seems to me there's a huge difference between casting TV commercials and admitting students to colleges. Does it really matter which actors are in TV commercials? No, not really. The race or gender of the person telling me that their brand of toothpaste makes my teeth whiter than other brands is totally irrelevant to me, the consumer. I could care less. But the qualifications of the people who are admitted to our engineering schools, to our medical schools, to our architecture schools, to our nursing schools, they matter a lot. Can we as a society afford to engineer these student bodies based on anything other than intellectual excellence? Does it really matter how their photos look in the school admissions brochure? Or does it only matter how these students perform in their fields? What's becoming painfully clear to me is that what we are really witnessing in our society is a battle between meritocracy on the one hand and social engineering on the other. To put it another way, it's a battle between meritocracy and mediocrity. I was listening to the Victor Davis Hanson podcast the other day, and he said something about this trend of mediocrity, which really struck a chord with me. Here's what he said. Throughout history, anytime you have these fads and these hysterias, then you create opportunities for mediocrity. So if you're in the Soviet Union during the show trials of the 1930s, and then you go after the military and you start executing everybody who built the modern Soviet military, and then you start promoting on ideology, the people who almost lost the Soviet Union, the war in 1941, from June 22nd onward, were all political general. And they had to bring out the people from Siberia or who had been relegated to tidewater or tide pool type things. They were they brought them back in the mainstream. They didn't want to. They had to. And the same thing about every in the 60s. I had so many professors. They put on wire rim glasses and grew their hair long and didn't take a bath at UC Santa Cruz. And I thought they were I was to think that they were really cool and they were great professors because they saw an opportunity and they took it to hide their mediocrity under the cloak of being cool. Well, this is what's happening right now. So every opportunist, every mediocrity, every person who cannot be a good teacher is going to be woke. And every administrator, where where was a person headed who was a diversity, equity, inclusion administrator prior to this? Where were they? What were they going to do? They were going to what major in gender studies or transgender studies or something. And then they were going to float around. Yep. They weren't going to get a job and no, they weren't going to get any respect from anybody. And now it's like, I got to get in there. I got to do this. I've got to wrap that person out more than anybody else. I've got to have five cancellation scalps under my belt. I've got a deep, I've got a doc. That's what we're in right now, this revolutionary spiral. And it's drawing everybody out of the woodwork 
who's a total mediocrity. And I'm not going to get too close to my own career, but I can tell you that when I witness things firsthand, I say to myself, I can see where this trajectory is going following the George Floyd protests. And I will predict to myself, Victor, do not get angry, but every mediocrity in your circle who does not publish, who does not speak, who does not appear in media, who doesn't write books will now come to the fore and they will go after every single person who does. And this is a golden moment for mediocrity. And I have not been disappointed. I'm not talking about a particular campus. I'm not going to say anything more, but I can tell you that this is what happens in France in 1793. This happened in 1917 in the Soviet Union. It happened from 1966 to 78, 77 in China. It happened during the 60s in the United States, uh, 1968 in Europe. And when you have these revolutionary fluxes, you get a lot of really mediocre people who become revolutionaries because otherwise in calmer times are judged on their own achievement and merit, and they're found dismally wanting. Affirmative action policies are really just another form of social engineering. They are an attempt to construct a world which matches the vision we have in our heads of what an ideal society should look like. In his 1987 book, A Conflict of Visions, Sowell called this vision the utopian vision. Eight years later, he devoted an entire book to this vision called A Vision of the Anointed. When I think of affirmative action policies as just another form of social engineering, something clicks. It all starts to make sense to me. I can understand the human urge to engineer society, to have it be a certain way. Social engineering has been going on for centuries. We humans like to tinker with the natural order of things. But as Sowell says, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And the real question is this. Are we willing to undermine and even give up our meritocracy for the sake of social engineering? And if yes... What exactly will we be losing? Are the trade-offs worth the price? To help me answer these and other questions, I've invited some scholars on the show who have spent a great deal of time and energy studying affirmative action policies and their real-world dynamics. Our first guest is Peter R.C. Diacono. Peter is a professor of economics at Duke University and is one of the expert witnesses in the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and the University of North Carolina case, which is currently being heard by the Supreme Court. Peter has spent many years studying the empirical, real-world effects of various forms of affirmative action policies, not just racially-based affirmative action, but also legacy and athlete affirmative action. He writes about the mismatch effect, which Sowell talks about in Chapter 6 of Inside American Education. I'll put a link in the show notes to the many scholarly papers Peter has published on this and other subjects. Peter R.C. Diacota, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thanks for having me. The first thing I want to ask you is, what is your experience with Thomas Sowell's work? What is your uh, knowledge of his views on affirmative action and just, you know, in general, what you know about Sowell and his ideas. So I became familiar with Sowell in the year after I graduated college. Uh, I had a gap year before going to grad school. I don't know who put me on to him, but read 
uh, a bunch of his books then. Um, a lot of it about you know what would l- help l- facilitate convergence of you know the, the racial gaps that we still see today. And then on affirmative action, you know, I think he did you know begin introducing that that idea of, of mismatch and you know sort of the importance of you know people having the skills that they need to succeed. The the last episode I did was about chapter six of Thomas Sowell's Inside American Education, which was a 1993 book. And chapter six was about affirmative action mostly and the mismatching effect that it creates. But he he also laid out uh, six effects that he thought that affirmative action policies actually created. One was the mismatching of students with colleges and with other students at the college. And I think that's an important distinction that it's a mismatching not only with the college, but with the other students who are gonna be there. He said that it led to lower graduation rates among minority students. He said it led to insecurity amongst those students who were artificially admitted, let's say, or boosted. He said it led to a pitting of black students against white students, an increased resentment among the white students, and a shifting of majors among minority students, uh, and that it would also divert their attention from academics to political activism. So those were the things he laid out in his book. And in my previous episode, I gave quotes from the book, and I sort of supported why he felt that way. So I know that you have done a lot of work in um, in the mismatching effect. Yeah, along a lot of different dimensions, including like um, the formation of cross-racial friendships and such. You know, one of those papers there, which I think is particularly interesting, is that if you look at students coming out of high school versus college, they have about, the the Black students have about the same number of other race friends in college as they do in high school. You would actually expect them to have way more uh, other race friends in college because the colleges they attend have a much smaller percent black than the high schools they attend. So once you account for that difference, colleges actually are leading to less integration than high schools. And that that's because of the wag you end up in the academic credentials, you know, that they're coming in with test scores that are, you know, well behind their majority counterparts and they're sorting into these friendships. People don't go around explicitly sorting by SAT scores, but it affects what classes you take and that's going to affect your peer group. Mm -hmm. It's going to affect who you end up studying with, affect your major. That's what a lot of my other work has been on is, is how it affects your major and all those things contribute to who your peers are. I, re- I went to the University of Pennsylvania uh, in, ni- in 1980. And I remember when I first arrived on campus, I saw a building and I was like, I said to a friend, what is that building? And they were like, oh, that's the W.E.B. Du Bois house. And I was like, well, what is it exactly? And I said, it's a dormitory for black students. And I thought to myself, that is the most insane thing I've ever heard. Why would they want to unmix the student body? from the very first year. Yeah, and I, I, I assume, 
And I assume that goes on on campuses all over the country. Is that is that happening at Duke as well? I don't know that Duke has a dorm just for that. Um, I'm not. There might be a selective living organization, but I'm not sure. So, so I mean, there's definitely an unsorting. I mean, a sorting that's going on at college, um, a racial and ethnic sorting that's going on because of you're you're saying because of the mismatching. Yes, and I think it's really important here to distinguish um, that the level of affirmative action really matters. I actually think a small amount of, of affirmative action would probably have good outcomes for uh, Black students. It's only when you push it really far, that's when you run run into issues. Um, you, you do want to go to a college that's a little bit above you. And so a small amount of, of affirmative action would facilitate that. But when you come in and on average, you know, you're at 1.4 standard deviations lower on some of these tests, that's when uh, there are going to be issues. So if someone who would usually qualify for a tier two university gets bumped into a tier one, that could actually be a positive for that student because it'll challenge them a little bit more. Whereas if someone who's going from a tier seven school into a tier one school, that's going to be a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. And it's the thing about all those schools is that the, it's not all that segmented. You know, there's so much overlap in some of these distributions. Um, but you're right. You know, to, to the extent that it shifts people up quite, you know, so much. And it really also depends on what outcome we're talking about. You know, at a place like Duke, mismatches is not going to affect their graduation rates. Uh, they're going to graduate. It's going to affect their choice of major. And typically, I think major is a place where you're going to be more likely to see it than graduation in general. This might have been more true today than when Sol was writing the book, but you know, they have majors that will graduate. You. That's another potential uh, bad response would would be you know to the extent that you end up shifting standards within the university. Well, we can graduate everybody just by handing out a degree. I, right. I don't think that's what's going on. Um, but, the, but my point is there's actually very different standards across majors. And as a result, that can have an impact on uh, that. I'm not, not as concerned about graduation rates as I am about the choice of major. I remember Sowell gave an example in his book in 1993 of uh, black students at MIT were in the top 10% in mathematics in the country, but they were in the bottom 10% in mathematics at MIT. And that only a quarter of them graduated. Wow. At the time. So um, that I think is a dramatic effect that we're losing 25% of these students who are actually just, you know, not graduating college because it was just too difficult for them. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you thinking about starting a podcast, launching a YouTube channel, or repurposing your old blog content? Then I have the podcast just for you. Hi. 
I'm Crystal Prophet, host of The Prophet Podcast. And as a content creator, I know firsthand what it's like to feel confused and overwhelmed with everything you could or should be doing. So join us every week as we strip down those processes and take all of that overwhelm away. We'll talk about the strategies I use to help creators start, launch, and market their content with confidence. If that sounds like something you're on board with, then click the link in the show notes and follow The Prophet Podcast today. Yes, I suspect that those numbers are much better today, but that's a function of a shift in educational philosophy at a lot of these schools where you know, basically great inflation has uh, led to higher graduation rates, um, less study time. So I, I think what, what the college degree means is, like, is a little bit different. You know, it's funny, when I was thinking about preparing for this uh, episode, I realized that I myself was a an unwitting participant in this whole dynamic. So I started off at Penn as a pre-med. And I took, you know, the calculus and the biology and all that. And organic chemistry was, for me, the stumbling block. And I, for some reason, my mind just did not absorb this. And I remember after taking the first semester of organic chemistry, which was when I changed majors, I was no longer a pre-med and I went into intellectual history. So I myself, I think, you know, did that sort of shift in majors because something was like too hard for me. Right. Well, so I can, I can relate to that feeling. Now, I can only imagine if I was at a school where I was, you know, even further behind the, the, the great majority of students, how I probably would have dropped out even way before organic chemistry and switched into an easier major. Right. And I, I think that this gets amplified because of a lack of information. A lot of my concerns about affirmative action would be could be addressed if universities were honest with their students. So, you know, that. What you described is my experience in college as well. I actually have a minor in chemistry, started out as a chemistry major and switched to economics. And I did not take organic chemistry. It, it didn't appeal to me, right. but it was very clear there. And I think that's probably why Soul's work resonated with me right after undergrad was how much harder the chemistry classes were than my econ classes. Econ's generally not considered an easy major, but Chem is harder. At least it wasn't my school. Um, and it wasn't close. And what you can see is that it's not only that um, the material is more difficult, they have, they have higher expectations there, but they're giving lower grades. They have better students because of the selection into that major, but they actually give lower grades. You know, that's fine. They can grade however they want in the Humanities can grade over they want. The issue is that, that students don't know that when they come in. And that that really matters. It matters um, because you you know you think I'm not good at chemistry. Well, actually, you're just as good at chemistry as everybody else. They're just giving lower grades there. It's interesting, you know, that act that part, I have another paper that shows that that disproportionately affects women because women value grades differently than men on average. There's a very interesting study by a father-son duo, Steinbrickner and Steinbrickner. 
And they actually asked students, what do you think your grades are going to be this semester? And then they told them. And then they showed them what their grades actually ended up being when the semester was over. So it didn't quite work out how you thought. Why? And guys were much more likely to say it was bad luck. And you could tell that they meant it because they didn't change what courses they took that much and they didn't change their study habits. Whereas women were more likely to take it personally and say, this was something about me. I needed to study more. I wasn't as prepared. And then they end up shifting out of some of these majors and studying more. So those kinds of things really matter. You could solve a lot of that by just making clear to students, here's what grades are in these fields. And then to me, the, the big case for transparency here would be at every school ought to release, if you're if you want to major in chemistry and you have test scores at this level with this combination of, of high school grades, the probability is whatever it is. Then people can make up their own minds as to whether they want to go through with it or not. So you know, except if people with uh, relatively low test scores at a school don't want, don't end up persisting in chemistry, it'd be good for students to know that before they get there. I mean, in principle, you know, when I went into grad school, I thought I would do more with mismatch than what I did. And the reason I didn't do it for a long time was that mismatch if people have good information, mismatch should not be an issue. You know, if I want to, if, if I'm fully informed, it's actually paternalistic to say, look, we're going to take this school out of your choice set because you going there would be bad for you. They're, they'd be making up their own minds with full information. So somebody may say, look, I want to go to Duke. And if that means I not going to major in the sciences, fine. I'd rather do that than go one level down and complete my, my STEM degree. But what became clear is that is how bad students are just not well informed about, you know, how different college is and how uh, different the sciences are within college. So when a student, you know, comes to Duke intending to major in a STEM field, but then they switch into an easier program, less demanding, uh, more, uh, you know, great inflation. Um, does, does that lead to lower incomes post-graduation? It, I mean, it must, I would think. Well, it's definitely the case that your major matters for your future income. And, right. if, and really, if that were not the case, I don't know why anyone would be majoring in the sciences. So, you know, Soul's main argument, I think, which and, and it's one of the things that I find fascinating about Soul is that he, he, he creates sort of a paradigm shift in your thinking. What he's really saying is that affirmative action is not really helping the people it's intended to help. And the question is, you know, is that true? Does, does affirmative action really hurt the people it's intended to, to help. And, and the reason we need to know this is because like I, I live in California and I got a, a ballot in my hands that said, do you want to uh, go back to using affirmative action in the college, in the UC system or not? And we have to have some information on 
how do we vote? Right. And uh, I, if you know, if you listen to, to my interviews with the college students from the previous episode, the truth is, I think that even very highly educated people don't really know what are the real world effects of these programs. So you've done a ton of research. So what's the answer? Do they help the people or do they hurt the people? And then, of course, I'll give you the economist answer, which is it depends. <laughs> you know, it depends on the outcome and it depends on the level of affirmative action. If affirmative action just barely you just needed a little nudge to get into Berkeley, that was probably going to be helpful for you. If you were one of the last ones to get in, I suspect it hurt you. There was an interesting paper by Zach Bleemer, generally finding pro-affirmative action findings. But it also, in my mind, illustrated quite clearly that for Black students in particular, affirmative action went too far. Now, what he did is he looked at what happened before and after Proposition 209 in California, which banned the use of racial preferences. And you could see that as a result of that, there wasn't any change in the earnings for Black students. That's sort of remarkable, given the level of preferences that they were receiving. Now, that's no effect on average. I see as a mixture of positive and negative effects. There were some people who were getting something positive from it, who were close to the thresholds, and other people who were getting hurt by it, who were far from the thresholds. So that that would be sort of how I would pick it. Now, that was the immediate effect. I think that when we think about, when I talk about affirmative action a little bit being good for minority students, that's for particular minority students but when you when you think about the whole system, then you, you can run into other issues through things like stereotyping and also through not dealing with the root causes. So I think one of the happens is that I sort of see affirmative action as a band-aid covering up a more serious issue. And the more serious issue is what's going on before college. The reason you have affirmative action is because prior to college, the educational outcomes are vastly different. I think that what affirmative action does is it makes it appear as though we don't have those issues. We say, oh, well, well Berkeley's di racially diverse. It must be that our K through 12 education's serving all the racial groups in a similar manner. Well, that's not true. There, there are vast educational differences prior to college that really need uh, to be more of the focus. Let's talk a little bit about entrance exams. You know, when I was uh, preparing episode 18, the one before this, uh, MIT announced that they were reinstituting SAT requirements to get into MIT because they found them to be a good predictor of success at MIT, especially the mathematics part. And then just yesterday, I read that the American Bar Association was re recommending getting rid of the LSAT. To get into, have you heard this? I have not. It's so I, disappointing. I literally read this just last night when I was uh, preparing this episode that they are now recommending to no longer, that law schools no longer need to require the LSAT to get into law school. What, what, now, what are your thoughts on these two competing trends? I see MIT bringing them back and the Bar Association saying we don't need it. 
It seems to me like a crazy trend in American society right now. Well, the fact that it's an association, I mean, associations seem to tilt much more along the get away with standards due to, I think, political pressure than more than anything else. I think it's really sad. You know, they had this uh, professor at Georgetown Law School who was caught on video. She didn't realize the Zoom meeting was still going. And she was lamenting how the Black students were disproportionately finishing in the bottom of her class. And, you know, the video is a little cringy to watch. But the reality was that she was lamenting what was happening. And she was fired. Everyone was calling her racist and saying this is reflective of racist grading patterns. But the reality is, is that those LSAT scores do matter for your grades in law school. And affirmative action in law school is actually more aggressive than it is in undergraduate schools. So if you think about lining people up according to their undergraduate grades and LSAT scores, sort of combine the two of those, the 50th percentile of of Black admits, according to that index, is going to come in around the first or second percentile of white admits. That's wildly different credentials. And you could say, well, how does that matter for actual grades in law school? Well, Rick Sanders done the work on this and he shows that um, they're finishing, highly likely to finish at the bottom 10% of their class because of the difference in credentials. Now, Rick took a lot of heat for his work because what he said was affirmative action is leading to a lower number of black lawyers. What he did not take heat for was the finding I just told you, which was these relative credentials, of course, have to matter for how you perform within your school. There's just, there can't be any debate about that. So what happens? These students at Georgetown believe they're in a racist environment. They believe they're being treated poorly because of their, their race. The reality was, is that they were given large bumps in admissions. And then that, that is the first order effect. You know, the, the, what's happening on the grade side likely has little to do with race, except to the extent that the race affects what credentials you have coming in because of affirmative action. I will say one more thing about the, the testing issue, which is, again, I think is a massive failure on the part of universities. What, what MIT has hinted at in their responses, they, they say, we know that these test scores are predictive. All colleges should be using the data that they have to figure out who's going to succeed in the, the different fields. And they're not doing that. And they're, not, and they're certainly not informing the students of that information. And that would, be, that would be huge if they would actually look at the data, say, we know that these people are going to come in behind. And we're going to give them the resources to help them succeed. What they do is they just throw them to the wolves. I've been trying to get that data from Duke, just not for the purposes of even publishing with it, but to try to figure out how we can best help students in our major. And there were initial, some initial interest in that, but then no, they, they don't want us looking at that data. 
I think they want plausible deniability. So Sowell makes the argument in his book that the offers of remedial help for affirmative action admits is usually rejected by the admits themselves because they view it as a an insult. To me, that's where it's really key that you don't even make it about race. You could just say your test scores and grades are such. And then it's not, uh, we're giving you this help because you're black. <laughs> we're giving you this help for any student that is coming in with this combination of characteristics. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 911, what's your emergency? Hi, Lita! <laughs> I'm Kane Princeton. Not Dr. Princeton. I am done with counseling. That's it. This is a story about Mylena Hendrick, a corporate accountant at war with her enemies. You are pathetic! Depression. Mylena, I love you. And anxiety. <laughs> Connie, come back to me. <laughs> Mylena, everything will work out. <gasps> she needs a man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do this. Sometimes the hardest thing about life is living life. Listen to The Accountant and The Counselor wherever you get your podcast. You know, I, I wanted to share with you something that, that happened to me yesterday, actually. Um, I, I mentioned to you before we got on the call that uh, my wife and I homeschool our four daughters who are three, five, eight, and 10. And one, one area where we actually go outside the homeschooling is in mathematics, and here in Los Angeles, there's an organization called the Russian School of Mathematics. Have you heard of them? No. Okay. It's, it's a private organization that runs these sort of mini schools around the country. Uh, here, there's one uh, located in the Pasadena area. And they give really good math classes. And we send our daughters there. It's two hours per class. It's, it's hard. It's a long time for these young kids. And I was just having a conversation yesterday with the principal of the school about our eight-year-old. And I was saying to them, should this summer, should, should our daughter do the grade three honors program or the grade three advanced program? Now, the honors is above the advanced. I know it sounds confusing from the names, but, and she said, you know, I really think she's not ready for the honors program. I think if you put her in there, uh, she's going to feel like it's too hard. And I said, oh, no, I don't want that. I don't want her to lose her enthusiasm enthusiasm for math by being in a, in a program which it's too hard for her. It's going to undermine her confidence. She's not going to enjoy coming. So I would prefer we put her in a lower level. You see, I as a parent am so concerned about mismatching, <laughs> you know, because I know, and that was, that was only a slight difference. I'm not talking about third grade to seventh grade. I'm talking about third grade A to third grade B, you know, right. and I was, you know, petrified of the thought of my eight-year-old, you know, being in a mismatched environment because I felt like that would cause her to mentally switch out of mathematics and right. say, that's not for me. I'm not good at math. Let me do something else. And that's heartbreaking because that it, I have seen that at Duke. I think that there are plenty of students who come in who, after going through Duke, think that they're not good at math. 
which has to be an absurdity because, you know, we might not be at the level of MIT, but we're pretty good. Right. And those students who are getting in, all of them are good at math. Right. It's just a matter of how good they are relative to their peers and what is the environment like such that, you know, they have that math confidence, which really, really matters. It's huge. And, and you know, as a homeschooling parent, mismatching is something that is like a, the plague to me. I, you know, to, the thought of mismatching my child with an environment is um, the thing that I'm most worried about. And the thought that we're systematically doing that with students all across the country is very upsetting. It can't possibly be serving them. Yeah. And again, I think this is where if we had more transparency, it'd be a lot clearer. I was the expert witness in these cases against Harvard and UNC. And one of the main reasons I took those cases is because as somebody who studies affirmative action, you never really know how much affirmative action there is because universities don't release their admissions data like that at the level that you need. And so it's such a unique opportunity to see, okay, how close are we to affirmative action being a tiebreaker versus getting to more equal outcomes? In admissions, in order to to properly design the policy, you have to have all the information. We we haven't had that. What what ended up with happening with the Harvard case? Where does it stand right now? Well, the Supreme Court is, um, I think, going to hear arguments in October with, and then we'll see when they release a decision. So it's um, still up in the air. We don't know. We don't know if the plaintiff is going to win or Harvard. That's right. Um, and actually, they combined the Harvard and UNC cases. You know, speaking, speaking of Harvard, I, I wanted to ask you about the topic of legacy admissions. Now, legacy admissions is another form of affirmative action. That's right. Pretty much, right? You're taking uh, rich kids whose parents went to Harvard, and you're, they're, while their grades might not qualify them to study at Harvard, other things about them, like athletic performance or personality, enable the uh, university to sort of rubber stamp their admission. And obviously, they do this for other reasons, like the money that the that the alumni give and all that. So, do we see the same phenomenon among legacy admissions, not graduating or switching majors or not getting good grades? Do we see the same phenomenon occurring? Because you would think you would have to. You do. Um, I don't know about the graduating end because I've only really looked at this in the context of a place like Duke. And there we could see some of the same issues in terms of where they fell in terms of class rank and and things of that nature. I mean, it is interesting because you think the mismatch would be quite salient for them as well. I think there is a, a bit of a difference. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely against those preferences. And I want to say a little bit about that first. I think the, it is very important that institutions are perceived by the population as trustworthy. And legacy admissions, they may have some benefits in terms of the money that the university receives, but I think it works against the building trust in institutions in feeling like everybody's got a fair shot. Part of the reason we have affirmative action is because people don't feel like there's a fair shot. And so they, they will often view affirmative action as 
compensating for those legacy preferences. I don't think that's quite the right way to look at it. I think we need to get rid of the legacy preferences. At the other hand, am I worried that as a result of mismatch, these legacies end up doing poorly later on in life? This is where the money matters. If you're coming, you're going to get that, the, the unfairness later on in life is going to benefit them in such a way that they're shielded from some of those potential monetary costs for mismatch. You know, they're still going to get that good job because of, of family connections. So even if they switch from chemistry to uh, art history, if they're probably still able won't. to go work for daddy's hedge funds, then right. it's not going to affect them as much. Right. Talk to me about uh, affirmative action for Blacks versus Hispanics. What is the dynamic there? Stay with us. We'll be right back. So how do you live a good life, especially now? Is it about happiness, purpose, love, or friendship? And what about health or wealth? Can you live a good life even if you're struggling? The truth is often not what you think. I'm Jonathan Fields, best-selling author and host of the award-winning Good Life Project podcast. Every week, we bring you revealing conversations with some of the smartest, most accomplished, and yes, sometimes famous people that will awaken insight, arm you with practical tips, and inspire you to live your best life no matter what comes your way. Look for Good Life Project on your favorite podcast app today. So what you see is that bumps tend to be about twice as large for African-Americans as they are for Hispanics. Um, I mean, it depends on the school, but you'll always see that they're they're bigger for African-Americans than for Hispanics. And that in part reflects the fact that prior to college, the educational disparities are such that that, uh, really Blacks and and Native Americans are, are just behind the other groups. Then you have Hispanics, then you have whites and doing significantly better than whites are Asian Americans. Um, it's remarkable how well they're doing from a, you know, pre-college educational um, training. So that that's why you have the big differences. You know, we find that that's true both in the Harvard case and in, and at UNC really uh, that the preferences are quite large. At Harvard, we find that it quadruples the admit rate for African-Americans. And it's good. I think it's like 2.4 times for Hispanics in terms of how it affects their admit rate. Uh, The other odd thing is the way race sort of interacts with being disadvantaged. So you get a very large bump If you're black, you get a small bump if you're disadvantaged. But if you're black and disadvantaged, you don't get that disadvantaged bump. What that means is racial preferences end up favoring uh, more advantaged black applicants Mm. than the poorer ones. You know, there, there can be arguments for that, you know, Related to mismatch, you know, if you're worried that, you know, a little bit like what I said with legacies, right, that if the money can shield you from those mismatch effects, that might be why you could do something like that. 
Uh, at the same time, the trust in the institutions, and that this you know, goes down with that. And the idea that affirmative action is working to deal with racial inequality, well, it's not helping those poor black kids all that all that much. So it's basically helping the rich black kids more. More, definitely. That's what, uh, in, in episode 18, I played a clip of Sowell talking about affirmative action in India, which was directed at the so-called untouchables there. And he basically said that it almost exclusively helped only the upper echelon untouchables wow. and didn't help the lower echelon untouchables at all because they just, they didn't have any of the prerequisites. For, like you can't just take a kid from a small village in India and put him in medical school. You know, he just didn't have the, you know, any of the skills that you would need in medical school. Whereas the one that was already in college, you know, who had already made, that was the one that could get in to the right. medical school. Um, speaking there's, of, there's of a in- nice discussion of this, it- I don't know if you've read uh, My Grandfather's Son. Uh, no. This is uh, the autobiography of Clarence Thomas, who, you know, reading that book, it's a powerful book. I was actually reading it, you know, we were at the beaches of Hilton Head when I was started reading the book, and he's describing the segregated beaches at Hilton Head when he was growing up. And he grew up, he must have come from the poorest family background of any Supreme Court justice. I mean, his mom was destitute, which is why he ends up living with his grandfather. And later on, that this exact issue shows up. He's debating with a more rich family about the targeting of uh, affirmative action preferences. You know, whether they should be going to the wealthy ones or should we be shifting priority to making sure that the poor are taken care of. Speak, you know, speaking of the international, uh, you know, Thomas Sowell wrote a book, Affirmative Action Around the World, which I thought was just a fascinating book because I think very few people even know that affirmative action is practiced in other countries around the world. You know, it didn't even occur to me that it was. And when you actually look at how it's practiced in other countries, it's, very, very counterintuitive. Like, for example, in Malaysia, the Chinese minority occupies most of the seats in the specialized colleges, the scientific and, and technical schools. And there in Malaysia, they use affirmative action to boost the Malaysian majority, <laughs> which is so ca- counterintuitive that the majority needs the affirmative action and not the minority. Well, I think the idea is, for whatever reason, a lot of people are for proportional representation along these, along color lines. It's a very, to me, it's a bit of an odd concept because we we somehow think that that's equitable when what within those racial groups is substantial heterogeneity, right? Uh, If you looked at something like lining up they're not going to be proportionally representative according to income. Why would we want to be proportionally representative on the basis of race over income? It's it, it is an odd odd concept. The other thing about that is when affirmative action typically gets practiced abroad, most places will have an admissions exam, and then you might get a bump in terms of the number of points on that exam. 
we're so like that is the opposite of the U.S. system. That's unconstitutional in the U.S. system, according to one of the Michigan cases. You need to use race holistically. The irony is in a place like Korea, there they have a test-based system, but then they have a few slots that are holistic. And you know who gets those holistic slots? The rich kids. <laughs> it's not the poor kids. The poor kids get in through the test. And I think that that's one of the ironies about the whole affirmative action debate. When we talk about getting rid of tests, yes, tests favor the rich. They favor the rich through both because of test prep, but also because the rich have had more money to invest in their kids throughout their kids' lives. The other stuff actually favors the rich even more. So, you know, a classic example of this would be the fact that Harvard has an athletic rating that affects their admissions decisions. This athletic rating is given to people who are even non-recruited athletes. Well, the people who do best on Harvard's athletic rating are white legacies. Why is that? Well, part of that is the sports that Harvard offers. Harvard offers more sports than any other school in the country. And the last sport you offer is, a, is really a rich kid sport. So it's sailing. And then the other way that that is going to favor um, sort of rich kids is through even participating on the athletic team. I am incredibly athletically untalented. There is no way I could have played on my suburban, really good suburban public schools soccer team. My kids who went to a private school, they're, they all make the soccer team. Everybody, everybody makes the everybody. soccer team, right? Because <laughs> it's about so, self-esteem. It's not about sports. <laughs> which which uh, in this case, I'm happy about because <laughs> they weren't going to make that team without something like that. But you know, now they apply to college. Oh, this kid was on the soccer team. If we right. value the sports participation, that will favor kids from private schools who will disproportionately be on those Right. In, in a way, it's just a workaround around about you know around not being able to uh, give people points uh, for their you know group affiliation. Exactly. That's but, why but, I would actually, to the extent that we have affirmative action, I would prefer it to be an explicit point system. And I say that in part because I don't, after going through these cases, I'm not impressed with what holistic admissions means. Right. I'd rather have it be a transparent system where we're going to give you so many points for whatever the things are, everyone knows what those points are, then at least we have better information. Sort of like a handicap in golf, right? Like, you, you know, a lower tier player gets, you know, 10 points uh, handicap or something. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, you know what it is going before you start the game, you know exactly what the handicap is. Exactly. Cause I don't understand why sports would be relevant. You know, if I'm choosing a, you know, a heart surgeon, the fact that he was, you know, good at sailing or basketball is sort of an irrelevant uh, factor in whether I would want to have that person operating on my heart. I don't see how they justify this sports participation as a credential for getting into college. Well, this is where the little bit of the scam is, because what they'd like to say is that they have that they have need blind admissions, but they'd really also like to admit the people who are going to pay full freight. And so we can say, oh, we just happen to really value sailors. 
knowing that if you're on the sailing team, you're more likely to be paying full freight. And then we still say, oh, we're need blind, <laughs> uh, have need blind admissions, but do you really? I could pick your brain on this subject for hours, literally. I don't want to keep you too long, but I, I find it I find it really fascinating because you know it brings up this whole issue of the goals of certain programs and the actual real world effects. And it seems like our society has been uh, struggling with this issue for about sixty years, right? And I don't feel like we're any closer to clarity on it. If, if anything, it almost feels like we're getting further and further away. And why, we why, say clarity on it. What do you mean? Like the society being able to decide if this is a, you know, direction we want to keep going in. Right. Um, it seems like it's been, you know, it's not agreed upon at all. Yeah. And, you know, the Harvard and, and UNC case makes clear that we're still fighting about it. And, uh, and, and the fact that there was a proposition on the last ballot in California shows that we're still fighting about it. There are people trying to bring it back where it doesn't exist, get rid of it where it does. And it just seems like a never ending battle. Well, there, I think the key to this is that it's actually a contrast between the elites and everybody else. How so? You know, in academia, I would have thought that everyone was tremendously supportive of affirmative action. Pew recently did a poll on this and they asked, should race be a major factor, a minor factor, or not a factor in admissions? Over 70% said not a factor. Over, I believe it was over 60% of Democrats, not a factor. Over 50% of Blacks, not a factor. And yet, it is anathema to have the view that affirmative action isn't absolutely wonderful in university settings. If you look at Prop 16, the results from that in California were remarkable. If there was any place where you would think that racial preferences would be popular, it would be in California. And you top that off by voting on whether to have them in an election where Trump was on the ballot. In California, if you're not going to get racial preferences in, then you're never going to get them in. So the preferences themselves are, I think, actually unpopular. How did that vote end, by the way? What was the uh, numbers? I can't remember, but it, it, uh, it failed miserably. And in fact, it failed by a wider margin than the original proposition passed by. So it, it it was striking. And if you look about at the amount of money spent on the pro Prop 16 campaign, they outspent the, the other side by leaps and bounds. Why? Because corporations felt a lot of pressure to support this. So I mean, it really is in stark contrast. And the other part to it is, is in my mind, there's a lot of misinformation about the polling numbers I just told you. Because if you ask the question in a different way, if you ask the question, are you in favor of affirmative action? More than 50% of the people will say yes. But it's clear that they don't understand that when they say what it's not, it's clear that what they mean by affirmative action is different from racial preferences and admissions. Because if you make it explicit about should race be a factor in admissions, 
overwhelming majority says no. Now, if you ask about affirmative action, like we want to provide everyone with sort of equal opportunities, they're going to mean something different by that. That could be targeted outreach, making sure that we get the information out to different groups. Um, It could be things like vouchers, uh, those kinds of things. It's not clear how people are interpreting the question, which is why I think the more specific question is the relevant one, because then you know we're talking about racial preferences and emissions. And there, um, among the masses, you have one view, and among the elites, you have a different view. Wow. I think that says it all pretty much. Yeah, the common man just has a different view of the world than the elites. That's right. And what the elites will say is that the common man is just racist. So that's why, and it's a very paternalistic view of, you know, of the masses. Right. Well, on that note, Peter, thank you very much for joining us on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you for having me. Now that we've heard what Peter has to say on the subject of affirmative action, I think it's important to hear an expert from the other side of the intellectual fence. I'm a huge fan of hearing all arguments on an important issue, then making up my own mind. It's not a perfect process, but it's really the best way we have of approaching the truth with a capital T. That's why free speech is so important. Before I invite our next guest on the show, I want to tell a short story from my college days. It was 1982. I was a junior at the University of Pennsylvania, majoring in intellectual history. My professor and mentor was Dr. Alan Coors. Dr. Coors had assigned a reading by John Stuart Mill that week. And when the class started, I raised my hand and said, Professor Coors, there was a passage in this week's reading which I feel sums up what we are doing in this class. May I read it out loud to the class? Go ahead, Alan, he said. So I read the passage. When I stopped and looked up, there was Dr. Coors leaning forward from the pulpit he was lecturing from with his arm outstretched. In his hand was a dollar bill, and he motioned for me to come up and take the dollar bill from him, which I did. I was puzzled. Dr. Coors only said, thank you for that, Alan, and he went back to lecturing. I must have nailed it because I never again saw Dr. Coors offer a dollar bill to any student after that. Are you curious what the passage was that I read? Here it is. The greatest orator, save one, of antiquity, has left it on record that he always studied his adversary's case with as great, if not with still greater, intensity than even his own. What Cicero practiced as the means of forensic success requires to be imitated by all who study any subject in order to arrive at the truth. He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. His reasons may be good, and no one may have been able to refute them. But if he is equally unable to refute the reasons on the opposite side, if he does not so much as know what they are, he has no ground for preferring either opinion. The rational position for him would be suspension of judgment, and unless he contents himself with that, he is either led by authority, or adopts, like the generality of the world, the side of which he feels most inclination.
nor is it enough that he should hear the arguments of adversaries from his own teachers, presented as they state them, and accompanied by what they offer as refutations. This is not the way to do justice to the arguments, or bring them into real contact with his own mind. He must be able to hear them from persons who actually believe them, who defend them in earnest, and do their very utmost for them. He must know them in their most plausible and persuasive form. He must feel the whole force of the difficulty which the true view of the subject has to encounter and dispose of, else he will never really possess himself of the portion of truth which meets and removes that difficulty. Ninety-nine in a hundred of what are called educated men are in this condition, even of those who can argue fluently for their opinions. Their conclusion may be true, but it might be false for anything they know. They have never thrown themselves into the mental position of those who think differently from them and considered what such persons may have to say. And consequently, they do not, in any proper sense of the word, know the doctrine which they themselves profess. This is the reason why it's so important that I invite on this show people who disagree with Sowell. Not just disagree, but passionately disagree with him. We need to hear what they have to say, consider it, absorb it. As Mill would say, we need to, quote, throw ourselves into the mental position of those who think differently from us, end quote. With that understanding, I would like to introduce our second expert to the show, Zachary Bleemer. Zach is a postdoctoral fellow at Opportunity Insights, which is a not-for-profit organization based at Harvard University, whose mission is to help people rise out of poverty. He is also a research associate at Berkeley's Center for Studies in Higher Education. This coming fall, Zach will be joining the Yale Business School as an assistant professor of economics. Even though Zach is still early in his economics career, he has made some waves recently with a paper he published called Affirmative Action, Mismatch, and Economic Mobility after California's Proposition 209. Zach's paper makes the case that the mismatch theory proposed by Sowell and others does not pass the test of empirical verification. Let's hear what he has to say. Zach Bleemer, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Hey, thanks very much, Alan. So I wanted to invite you onto the show because I'm doing a lot of thinking and investigating about affirmative action, uh, about Sowell's views on affirmative action. And I think it's important to check uh, a lot of these ideas with other scholars and, and, and see if there are any uh, contrary viewpoints. You know, did, does Sowell get it wrong about anything or has anything changed since he wrote Inside American Education in 1993. Um, and what is the, you know, the current thinking? You know, uh, Sowell's basic position is that affirmative action not only hurts the society, it not only hurts the university system, but it also hurts the students, which it intends to help. Now, uh, this is, you know, pretty uh, unusual viewpoint. And I wanted to, you know, get your take on that. And, and also to have you explain to our audience what you've what work you've done, you know, what you've studied, and, and give us a background on that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Adam Pacifico, host of the UK's number one ranked leadership podcast, 
the Leadership Enigma. We're helping leaders, their teams, and organizations all over the world discover new ways of working to succeed in a world that just won't stop changing. With over 100 episodes already, our guests have included top CEOs, Olympic athletes, undercover police officers, former NBA players, psychologists, New York Times best-selling authors, military commanders, academics, and more. We'd love you to come and join the conversation and be part of the Leadership Enigma community. Yeah, sure. That sounds great. So maybe let me start by just giving a little little bit of background on how I've approached this question, the kinds of data that I've collected, and then can start diving into, you know, sort sort of point by point. Uh, what I've learned about the, the theories that Sowell put forward. So I first became interested in this question five or six years ago. Uh, I was working with the University of California to study a different undergraduate admissions policy that they call eligibility in the local context, which they had put into place after California banned affirmative action in 1998 My sense is with the intent of trying to maintain Black and Hispanic enrollment, despite the fact that the voters had prohibited them from targeting ethnicity in undergraduate applications. So I was interested in just studying this alternative policy, trying to understand how it worked, which students were targeted, what the long-run ramifications of this policy were for students. And as I was talking to University of California administrators about the policy, it became clear that a comparison was going to be necessary. If we want to understand what this 21st century policy was doing in undergraduate admissions, we'd better understand what affirmative action had been doing in admissions until it was prohibited in 1998. And so I I worked with university administrators to put together a pretty incredible data set that let us follow a very large number of young Californians uh, through their undergraduate application cycle, through their enrollment at many universities, and then all the way into the labor market to try to understand what happened to young Californians when the University of California stopped doing affirmative action uh, in admissions in 1998. So that's really what I wanna emphasize here. Almost everything that I'm going to say going forward is sort of specific to this one case study. We have a very large state that had a very impactful race-based affirmative action policy at nearly all of its selective undergraduate uh, universities. That policy pretty abruptly ended in 1998. And that provides this sort of interesting natural, sorry, this interesting natural experiment that in many ways I think is going to be reflective of something that's about to happen across the country. There's good reason to expect that the Supreme Court will will prohibit the use of race-based affirmative action across the US next year. And so this provides a sort of nice case study to see what happened when a single state, California, did that 25 years ago. What's also nice about this setting is that California is a really big state. And so you can follow a very large number of students. Statistical power isn't an issue. And this policy change happened 25 years ago. And so you can follow people for a pretty long time. You can get a sense of say, what happened to young black and Hispanic high school graduates who lost access to selective universities in California because those schools stopped doing affirmative action, not just in terms of whether they ended up going to college, where they went to college, what degrees they earned, et cetera, but you can follow them into their early forties to see how this had very, long run ramifications 
for their uh, for their work, uh, at least into the middle of their careers. Okay, so uh, what did you learn? Yeah, so I'm going to break what I learned into three parts, and please feel free to interrupt me at any time or you know, guide me in one direction or another. But the three parts that I think are most relevant here are first, just trying to get a sense of how big of a policy affirmative action was, whether this mattered, how many kids were impacted, uh, just how it worked in an admission sense. Then I can turn to what, you know, one of the main points of Sowell's discussion of affirmative action, which is trying to understand the impact of affirmative action on the students that it targeted. So there's a group of Black and Hispanic students who enroll at more selective universities because of affirmative action. How does that change those kids' lives? And the way I'm going to answer that question is by seeing how those kids' lives were changed when they lost access to selective universities when affirmative action was banned. And then I'll come back at the end to the question of, okay, so say there was no affirmative action, that means that we're no longer bumping up Black and Hispanic students, which means there's some open seats that can be taken by white and Asian students instead. And so I can try to say a little bit about the ramifications of banning affirmative action for the white and Asian students who ended up taking the places of the Black and Hispanic students who had previously been crowding them out under the affirmative action regime. So I'll come back to that at the end. So, okay, so, but starting at the beginning, what does affirmative action do? When you ask university administrators to talk about race-based affirmative action, it's often described as a sort of light touch policy. You have two students who apply to a university and uh, they're pretty similar with, in terms of their academic background, uh, but one of them is white and another one is black or Hispanic or Native American. And what the university is doing when it implements race-based affirmative action is it's just putting a finger on the scale in favor of students from underrepresented minority backgrounds, providing a small admissions bump to those students. I think the first thing to make clear about race-based affirmative action policies is that's not how they worked. There were a very large number of students in California in the mid-1990s who, if they had applied to, say, UC San Diego or UC Irvine, uh, with the high school GPA and SAT score that they had. And if they were white or Asian, they would have had essentially a 0% chance or a less than 10% chance of getting into these schools. Whereas if they applied and they were black or Hispanic or Native American, they were essentially guaranteed admission to these schools. The clearest example of this is at UC Davis in Northern California, which effectively had never rejected a qualified Black or Hispanic applicant until the mid-1990s. It was essentially guaranteeing admission to almost all Black and Hispanic applicants until uh, this fact was pointed out by, uh, by a regent of the university at the time, which obligated them to change their admissions practices. So I think the first thing to keep in mind here is that affirmative action is not a light touch policy. It's a big policy that pretty dramatically changed the kinds of schools that a very wide swath of Black and Hispanic high school graduates were able to attend. And so when affirmative action was phased out in 1998, essentially every Black and Hispanic high school graduate in the state of California was impacted in a really meaningful way. You have this, what's called the sort of cascade of students, where essentially every Black and Hispanic student starts enrolling at a like one tier down university than they were otherwise going to enroll at. So you know, Berkeley lost roughly 75% of its Black and Hispanic students. Those students went to, say, a UC Davis. Davis lost students to UC 
see Riverside, you see Riverside lost students to the CSU, all the way down the list. What's sort of interesting about this then is that while the University of California as a whole lost about 20% of its black or Hispanic students because of the end of its race-based affirmative action policy. So one in five black and Hispanic students who would have enrolled at the university because of affirmative action no longer did so. That masks what's really happening at the university, which is that, you know, take a look at say UC Davis. So UC Davis gained black and Hispanic students who used to be going to UC Berkeley and lost black and Hispanic students who are now going to UC Santa Cruz. And so the net black and Hispanic enrollment at UC Davis didn't change at all. That 20% decline essentially all happened at Berkeley and UCLA at the top. And then everyone else who stayed in the university was going to a school one tier down than the schools they had previously been going to. So that sort of sets the stage. That's what I'm going to be studying when I ask, okay, what happened to Black and Hispanic students in California after 1998? I'm going to be studying this effect where 20% of the kids who were going to enroll at the University of California get bumped out, and everyone else is going one tier down than they otherwise would have. It's, it's interesting because in, uh, in Sowell's chapter six, he talks about this shifting effect, and he talks about it on the way up. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, exactly up. everything and, that I'm going to be saying is sort of backwards from that. Yeah, right. It's, it's the exact opposite of that. And he says that really the only change is at the very bottom where they're now forced to admit people that they usually would have rejected. And they have to now take because their uh, students were getting sucked upward into the into the chain. And now you're talking about the reverse movement where uh, everybody just moves, bumps down a level. And then there's really basically nobody left at the top. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's exactly right. Just to sort of add one extra point here that's sort of interesting. Remember that the schools at the bottom of this chain, which are the community colleges and the non-selective uh, uh, local comprehensive universities, are exactly that. They're non-selective. And so those schools at the bottom actually were never doing affirmative action because they didn't have selective admissions policies in the first place. They could just admit anyone who was qualified before or after the implementation of affirmative action. And so we actually don't see very substantial changes in net undergraduate enrollment among Black and Hispanic students when affirmative action ended. Instead, you just have this cascade to less selective schools and growth in Black and Hispanic enrollments at places like community colleges and these non-selective CSU campuses that were essentially admitting anyone who would apply. And now there were a whole bunch of Black and Hispanic students who couldn't get in anywhere but those schools. So it's this huge just shift across the spectrum, exactly, I think, as he's described. Now, if Sowell were here or someone else who, who believes in the mismatch theory, they would say this is a wonderful thing because these people are now better matched exactly. with other students at their own level. Yeah, yeah. That's and they're exactly going to do better. They're going to thrive. They're going to feel better. They're going to focus on their education and they're going to graduate more frequently, et cetera, et cetera. Do you agree with that? Is that what happened? Yeah. So that is what Sowell and many others expected to happen in the 1990s. Um, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment what actually happened when you just follow these kids along. But let me first just mention that there are a bunch of theories that Sowell has about the use of affirmative action that I can't test because I don't have the right data to test them. So I think it's just worth calling at least two of those up. One is this theory about psychology, where students who uh, 
are targeted by affirmative action feel out of place at a university. They're constantly being put down because the other students at the university are more academically prepared than they are. They feel discouraged and that discouragement could lead them to make different kinds of choices in their lives. I have no way of measuring discouragement or how people feel when they were in college. And so I'm really not gonna be able to say anything about these sort of psychological impacts of affirmative action. Another thing that I'm not gonna be able to say anything about is how the world, employers, professors, other students, saw students who were targeted by affirmative action, whether they believed that the black and Hispanic students at say UCLA didn't belong there, or they took opportunities away from those students because they knew they were only there because of affirmative action. Again, these, these ways that people are treated are just not in a direct sense measurable to an economist 25 years later trying to understand the grand ramifications of uh, affirmative action policy. So I think it's just worth saying up front, I have nothing to say about those questions, but a lot of things are measurable. So let's just go through the list. Here are some things that are measurable. Uh, did this kid actually go to college in the first place? While they were in college, what courses did they take? Uh, what grades did they get in those courses? And were they able to persist in sort of difficult fields of study at the more selective university that affirmative action allowed them to be admitted to? Did they end up getting a degree from that university? And was that degree in a STEM field or some other lucrative college major? Did they then go to graduate school? And what did they go to graduate school to study if they went? And then finally, once they hit the labor market, how much money did they earn? Not just in their early and mid-20s, but through their 20s and 30s. Uh, what was the ramification of their going to the more selective school? And Sowell has clear answers to those questions. The expectation is, that when affirmative action ends and Black and Hispanic students flow into less selective schools, they should match better. They should be able to perform better at these schools where they're sort of more similar to their peers and where the curriculum is more appropriate to their preparation. And so you should see increases in degree attainment, increases in STEM degree attainment because they're able to persist in STEM fields, increases in graduate degree enrollment, and maybe even increases in earnings. That's not what happened in California in the mid-1990s. Affirmative action ends in 1998. And if you just line up Black and Hispanic 18-year-olds who were applying to the University of California in the years before 1998 and then the years after 1998, what you see is that Black and Hispanic students became less likely to earn college degrees, at least at the bottom of the academic spectrum. So kids with relatively lower GPAs and SAT scores. They became less likely to earn degrees in STEM fields. They became less likely to earn graduate degrees, especially in a set of high paying professional schools. And if you just look at the average wages of the black and Hispanic students who entered the labor market, but hit college in 1998 or later, and so didn't have access to affirmative action relative to kids who were just a little bit older, and so hit college when affirmative action was still being implemented, you can see that the kids who didn't have access to affirmative action were earning about 5% less immediately and persistently through their careers if they didn't have access to selective schools that they would have had access to under this affirmative action regime. So what it looks like was happening is the opposite of mismatch. Affirmative action was providing Black and Hispanic students access to more selective universities with better prepared peers and more challenging curricula. And they have seemed to have risen to the challenge or at least been able to take advantage of that more selective education. 
both in terms of educational outcomes like degree attainment, but also in terms of long-run labor market outcomes. Let me unpack that maybe just a little bit more. So I think there's a lot of particular interest about what's going on in STEM fields, and in particular fields like biology, chemistry, physics, computer science, maybe even math, fields where you have to come in as a freshman to college and you immediately start taking introductory courses in these fields. So you want to be a chemistry major. So you come in and you take two semesters of uh, basic or introductory chemistry, and then you take two semesters of organic chemistry. And then if you have high enough grades, you declare a chemistry major and persist in the field. So Here's one thing you might wonder. Consider Black and Hispanic students who were enrolling at UC Berkeley under the affirmative action regime. Uh, So these were kids who, if they hadn't been Black or Hispanic, most of them would not have been admitted to UC Berkeley. Let's just ask a couple of questions. What grades were those kids earning in organic chemistry and these other introductory science courses? What was their likelihood conditional on taking one of those science courses that they persist to the next course relative to other peers at the same school, white and Asian students at UC Berkeley. And then we can ask, okay, what happened when affirmative action ended and students with that same academic caliber started going to a less selective school, say UC Davis, instead of the more selective school like UC Berkeley, did that mean that they were able to get better grades or were more able to persist now that they were sort of more similar in terms of academic preparation to their average peers? So I can do that very directly. I have all of these students' uh, college transcripts. So I can see who takes these introductory courses, what grades they get, and their likelihood of persisting to the next course. And one thing that turns up first is that Black and Hispanic students at UC Berkeley under the affirmative action regime were getting way lower grades than their white or Asian peers. I think you would expect that, right? Like these were kids who only were admitted, at least in many cases, because of Berkeley's affirmative action policy. Obviously, they're going to do worse in their freshman science courses. There are two possible explanations for that. One is that they mismatched at Berkeley. Berkeley is the wrong school for them. Another is that they came in underprepared and they would have done badly in introductory science courses no matter what university they went to. It's not a Berkeley problem. It's a student problem. And fundamentally, either that you know, there's, there's a lot of possible explanations for that. My preferred explanation is that it's really about schooling. But who knows? There's, there's a lot of other things that could be different between the Black and Hispanic students at Berkeley and the white nation students. So, okay, let's just test those two hypotheses. Is it really about Berkeley or is it really about the students? Here are two ways of testing that. One is, instead of comparing all Black and Hispanic students at Berkeley under the affirmative action regime with their white and Asian peers, Let's instead compare them to white and Asian peers with similar SAT scores or high school GPAs or kids from the same high schools as them. So sort of try to line the Black and Hispanic students up academically with their white and Asian peers and see, does that explain the gap in grades and persistence that we observe at Berkeley? And the answer is yes, you can fully explain the gap on the basis of academic preparation. I don't think that's so surprising in itself. Like the reason that Black and Hispanic students at Berkeley were doing worse is that they came in less prepared. And that's, that fully explains the gap. But that starts to make you wonder, okay, so if that's the case, is there a match effect? Does it matter that they're at Berkeley relative to some other school? Or is it just that they're less prepared? So now we can ask, 
affirmative action ends in 1998. Now these same students are going to, or very similar students are going to enroll at a less selective school. What happens when they go to UC Davis instead? The first thing that's very observable is that at UC Davis, they are more relatively academically compared, uh, academically prepared relative to their peers, right? So now these kids are going to schools with peers more like them. That's observable. Do they get better grades? No, they get exactly the same grades that they have been getting at Berkeley. Are they more likely to persist in STEM fields? No, they're not. Are they more likely to earn STEM degrees? No, you get exact, pretty precise null effects. In other words, they were going to get bad grades. They were going to be unlikely to persist and stick in STEM fields no matter where they went to school. When affirmative action ended, they just had to go to Davis instead of Berkeley and get the same bad grades at Davis. Does that matter? Well, if you then follow those kids in the labor market, they are earning less if they come out of Davis relative to if they come out of Berkeley. At least two possible explanations for that. Maybe Berkeley is providing a higher quality education or maybe there's a signal value of going to Berkeley where, you know, because employers see that these students went to Berkeley, they get a bump in their at least early career salaries that maybe filter through to their mid-careers. I, I, I don't have a great way of arbitrating between those two stories. What at least is clear is that bumping these kids to less selective schools did not improve their match quality in terms of uh, uh, persistence or performance in introductory science courses. And if anything, led to pretty substantial wage declines. And where that came from was declines in degree attainment and declines in graduate degree attainment, as well as differences in the undergraduate institutions that they ultimately got their degrees from. The results that you're finding are, you know, go against what Sowell is saying in his book, that mismatching is not a problem, according to your research. Now, let me, let me ask you this question. Do the white and Asian students who formerly were getting bumped down also have no change in their grades or graduation rates or employment earnings? I mean, you would think that um, they would have a decline in their employment earnings because they don't have the Berkeley brand on their resume anymore. Is that true? It's a great question. To be honest, I think it's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. Um, The study that I wrote on this subject tries to put together a couple of different uh, research designs to study this question. Let me describe one for you. So consider the white and Asian students who were right on the margin of being admitted to UC Berkeley under Berkeley's affirmative action regime, so before 1998. Right, so these were the kids that when affirmative action ended, they were going to get access to Berkeley because they were the ones who were like just below admission, but affirmative action is going to end. Black and Hispanic students are going to disappear. They're going to be the students who crowd in to a school like Berkeley. So take a look at those students. It turns out that Berkeley had a pretty sharp admissions threshold at the time. It's really not difficult to find the kids who barely made it into Berkeley and then compare them to the kids who barely didn't make it in among these white and Asian students. And so you can just ask, okay, how different did their lives look? The ones who were able to go to Berkeley compared to the ones who had to go somewhere else instead. Two sort of interesting things show up when you compare these two groups of students. One is that the students who didn't get access to UC Berkeley, who were white or Asian, actually went to quite similar quality universities instead of Berkeley. 
to a greater degree than it seems uh, black and Hispanic students were doing if uh, uh, under the affirmative action regime. So what I mean to say is uh, white and Asian students seem to have been more likely to otherwise go to private institutions, uh, out of state institutions, or the other selective University of California campuses, whereas black and Hispanic students were more likely if they didn't get access to these universities to either go to uh, local comprehensive universities or somewhat less selective public schools. As a result, the value of UC Berkeley appeared to be somewhat lower for the white or Asian students who were going to that school relative to black or Hispanic students because the sort of counterfactual enrollment was somewhat better for these white or Asian students. But I don't think that tells the whole story. It also looks like the return to going to a more selective school was larger for black and Hispanic students than it was for white and Asian students. In other words, it's not necessarily the case that this is a zero sum game, that there's some amount of pie that's being eaten by different amounts of, uh, uh, by, by different kids to different degrees. It might be the case, for example, that Berkeley is, uh, is better at providing like a big wage junk to kids who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds and who are able, better able to take advantage of Berkeley's resources than kids who are gonna do well no matter what and who are, uh, who are admitted to Berkeley and then take Berkeley as it is. That's a somewhat controversial hypothesis. I think there's a lot of very active research trying to understand what are called in the academic literature, dynamic complementarities or dynamic substitutes. Who is the more selective university better for? Kids who learn more there or kids who better match to that school? That's I think somewhat something of an open question. The best that I can say is that it looks like in the context of ending affirmative action in 1998, the benefits that accrued to the white and Asian students who crowded into these more selective schools appear to have been smaller than the costs faced by the black and Hispanic students who flowed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just last point there, that's not to say there weren't winners and losers. That affirmative action has winners and losers, And there's good reason to think that the white and Asian students who are crowded out by affirmative action, black and Hispanic students are the losers of the policy. All I mean to say is, you know, sort of in net, in trying to understand the sort of the grand economic or sociological implications of these policies, it looks like the gains to black and Hispanic students of affirmative action exceed the losses. To white and Asian students. Let's let's step back from the, the research for a minute and let, let me ask you a more philosophical question. Great. Uh, you know, I'm starting to realize that what's really going on here is a is a is a battle or a like a push and a pull between meritocracy and Something I call it so, I call it social engineering. Okay. I mean, I know that has sort of like a slightly negative spin to it, but let, yeah. allow me to call it that for a minute. I'm, right? I'm, that's fine. Sure. And, and this is happening, not just at colleges. I'm seeing it at places like Stuyvesant and Lowell. Absolutely. I'm hearing about the uh, American Bar Association is thinking of getting rid of the LSAT. Um, they just announced the SAT, the, the college board is going to be giving people up to a hundred extra points if they live in a rough neighborhood, essentially. Um, you know, there's a lot of, this battle going on where we're moving away from meritocratic standards to make, you know, give more people a place at the table, can we say? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which is, I guess, a form of social engineering sure, or how you sure. want the table to look. And 
For what it's worth, I would emphasize that meritocracy is also a form of social engineering where educational rewards are provided to people with the best academic preparation and academic uh, capacity or or, uh, competency. But there are a lot of ways to social engineer, a lot of ways to decide who to give places like Berkeley or Lowell to. I, I guess my question is, is like, you know, do the people who are promoting affirmative action policies realize that they are undermining the meritocratic system and they're okay with that? Do they not value the meritocratic system and they're happy to, you know, good riddance, they're happy to see it go? Or are they not aware that these policies undermine that system. You know, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head yeah. around what, where the people are thinking. Sure, sure. So let me start. This is a great question. It's a big question. I'm not sure we're going to have time to sort of get through all of it. But let me start just by orienting you know, sort of this question of meritocracy in three different settings, because I think the settings are quite different from each other. Uh, And so starting sort of the latest in people's careers, you can think about meritocracy in employment. So why do employers want to use meritocratic hiring practices? Well, the objective of employers is to maximize productivity. And so they're going to make hiring decisions in order to maximize productivity. And so they're going to use a sort of meritocratic selection scheme. They want to find the people who will be best at making stuff or making something for them, the owners. Uh, And so they're going to uh, hire people uh, exactly on that basis. And so meritocracy in uh, in employment settings is fundamentally about productivity, identifying who's going to be most productive in a job, and then hiring them, giving them the resources to produce value for the firm. I think the first thing to say is, to the degree that proponents of affirmative action have an interest in promoting a policy that is in many ways anti-meritocratic. I don't think there's any sort of direct challenge, at least in what we're talking about, to this kind of meritocracy in hiring, uh, which which also extends to things like meritocracy in awarding contracts um, or in in otherwise uh, uh, allocating resources in the workforce. Now, there's a sort of separate question about affirmative action in that world, but uh, I'm going to sort of leave that aside for now. So that's sort of point one. So then point two, uh, a different kind of meritocracy, I think, exists in graduate school. So consider meritocracy at law schools. So what's the goal of a law school? It's to produce lawyers um, who uh, presumably will be good lawyers and will practice law then for the rest of their careers. And so when they use a test like the LSAT, they're trying to find the people who are going to be the best lawyers and then they're admitting those students in a sense to so that those students don't become something else, right? So like a lot of what law schools are doing is trying to target students who are choosing between alternative careers, identifying people who would be particularly good at this career, admitting them, training them for the career, and then sending them off to work in that career. And so here, meritocracy is really about predicting future productivity. It's actually pretty close to the workforce case, where their goal is to find people who are going to be good at a job, train those people, and then send them out to do that job. I wanted to orient those two separately, because I think it actually is quite different from the story of what's happening at universities and what's happening at high schools. 
And it's quite different because there's no good notion of productivity in those two cases. So consider what a public university is trying to do. The public university has a public mandate, right? So it's uh, receiving funding from the state. And among other things, I think we should think of what the public university is doing is trying to identify which students will be able to best take advantage of the university, who can learn most, who can uh, interact best with the faculty and uh, uh, gain human capital, who can uh, get the most out of the university and then sort of provide it back to the state in terms of uh, economic growth or some other outcome. Uh, maybe overall or maybe in different parts of the state. The state might have uh, specific intentions to sort of you know, grow certain industries or to grow certain communities, etc. What I want to emphasize here is that it's not obvious that meritocracy, as currently employed through the use of high school grades or standardized tests or other measures of either academic preparation or capacity, is the optimal way for universities to find those kids, the kids who will most benefit from super selective schools like Berkeley or UCLA, or even like somewhat selective schools like uh, Santa Cruz or Riverside or uh, uh, Cal Poly, um, uh, just to give a couple of examples from California. So I think the, the key thing to keep in mind here is that meritocracy in undergraduate admissions isn't about finding the most productive workers or the people who are going to be the most productive workers. I, I think it should better be thought of as finding the people who will gain most from a specific kind of education. This you know, sort of rigorous undergraduate uh, education that's provided at American undergraduate institutions. Okay, so that, like, with that big picture in mind, let me just now come back to your question. Uh, to what degree do proponents of affirmative action uh, uh, think that they're undermining meritocracy in this area. And I should say, you know, my job here is to study affirmative action and like, just try to understand what happened uh, under these different policy regimes. I wouldn't call myself a proponent of affirmative action. And I'm not sure I'm the right person to sort of speak for proponents of affirmative action. But at the very least, I can give you a sense of where I'm coming from in trying to understand this policy. I think, the, I think it's reasonable to think about affirmative action as an anti-meritocratic policy in that it uh, admits students to selective universities who wouldn't be admitted under a traditional academic preparation or capacity oriented admission scheme, which is what we normally think of as meritocratic admissions. Instead, it's admitting people in a sense on the basis of prior opportunity or maybe promise or to use sort of terms that are closer to your notion of social engineering, it's just admitting people from certain communities that the state wants to train. And so that is anti-meritocratic in a sense. But from the big picture question of like, as public or even private universities are trying to understand which students they should provide themselves to, Berkeley is a super valuable resource in the state of California. Who should be given Berkeley? Uh, affirmative action is one policy that Berkeley used to use and doesn't anymore. They implement many other policies. Meritocracy is one available policy that to some degree is currently being used by Berkeley. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I think proponents of affirmative action would say, sure, like meritocracy is one of many policies. Affirmative action is another of many policies. Unlike in hiring, it's not so obvious why meritocracy is the right way of doing undergraduate admissions. 
Affirmative action was another way that targeted certain students and provided admission. Uh, proponents of affirmative action were happy with the outcomes of uh, uh, affirmative action admissions policies. Uh, though, to be clear, the people of California were clearly not in that they've now twice uh, voted uh, uh, in very large majorities to deny Berkeley the ability to use affirmative action in admissions. Um, How do you explain and, that, and, by the way, given that California is such a liberal state? It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? How do you explain that such a massive majority are against race-based preferences for admission? Yeah, and not just a massive majority. You know, I, I, If I remember right, polling, so you know, the, the most recent vote over affirmative action in California was in uh, November of 2011, I think. Sorry, 2021, I mean, right. if I remember correctly. This right. was over Prop 16. And polling right before that vote suggested that affirmative action was only polling at 50-50 among the Hispanic community, uh, like let alone the population at large, uh, which, uh, which rejected the proposition by 17 percentage points. Um, so it's clear, uh, uh, at least to me, that people believe affirmative action to be a deeply unfair policy. It's providing access to this super valuable state resource, UC Berkeley, on the basis of a thing that people are born with, their race. And it's pretty clear that people do not want Berkeley to be allowed to do that, despite Berkeley and other public universities' interest in doing that. Um, so, uh, uh, which is to say, uh, whether or not affirmative action benefits Black or Hispanic kids or has costs for white or Asian kids, that, that to me sort of seems like a, a sideshow relative to this, this bigger picture fact that the people of California do not want its public universities to be using affirmative action in admissions. Um, so, so, so yes, I, I think that's sort of, that's how I would answer your question. It's not, I have a professional interest in studying whether meritocracy is a good or bad way of admitting people to undergraduate institutions. Um, it's pretty obvious to me that meritocracy is a great way of uh, allocating jobs. And it's, it seems pretty clear that meritocracy is a good way of allocating graduate school seats. I'm very interested in whether meritocracy is a good way of allocating undergraduate seats. And I think there's a sort of very active research agenda trying to understand. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello. Welcome to the Redfern Book Review Podcast. I am your host, Amy Mayer. And if you're a reader... I think my show might just be for you. What I do is I take a deep dive into the books you've been wanting to read, uh, other books you've never heard of, and we talk about all things literary. Think public radio meets your book club via your best friend. We talk to authors, my friends, and I just add personal musings. It's a lot of fun. So, so the, really, the, your answer to my question was there's a fourth category, which is that people have a different view of meritocracy and they and they wonder whether that's really the role of a universe of an undergraduate university, which is to foster that yeah. or if, or if yeah, the yeah, university yeah. has some other role that it needs to play in society. Universities are super valuable. The question is just who to give the golden ticket to. One thing I think that comes away from my work on affirmative action is that if you choose to give the ticket to Black and Hispanic high school graduates with relatively lower SAT scores and high school GPAs, they win. 
Like it's, a, it's a really valuable ticket for them. Should we give the ticket to them? The people of California say no. Are there others who should be given the ticket instead? Right now, the ticket in many states and many countries around the world is usually given on the basis of test scores and grades. But it's not obvious to me that that's the optimal way of handing these tickets out. Uh, race-based affirmative action is out in California. It's soon to be out across the country. I think universities are thinking sure of that. Why do you seem so sure of that? Is it because so, you think a conservative Supreme Court is definitely going to rule that yeah, way? So, that- so right, so yeah, I mean, there's a consolidated case, um, uh, the, you know, a lawsuit against both Harvard and UNC that will be before the court in the fall. Uh, uh, the Supreme Court has upheld affirmative action policies, sort of to a narrowing degree, for the last forty years. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm now I'm now I'm on the record, so you know, uh, we'll uh, we'll see if my prediction is accurate. But I suspect that this is the you know, this coming 2022 fall is the last fall in which American universities will be explicitly implementing race-based affirmative action policies. These. Interesting. Which, uh, according to Sowell's theory, is good for everybody, though I'm skeptical of, uh, that that's the case. Skeptical or, or opposing it? I mean, where do you, where, you know, you've done a lot of research on this. So, I mean, if you have informed an opinion by now, you know, how much yeah, more yeah, research yeah. do you have to do? <laughs> I, so I'll be, I'll be clear where I stand. Uh, uh, the Supreme, if the Supreme Court ends race-based affirmative action across the country, there's a clear group of losers who are 18-year-old African-American and Hispanic Latino Americans who are going to lose access to selective universities. Is that bad? There's, there's another group of winners, um, 18-year-old white or Asian students uh, who could benefit from the more selective university enrollment that they will achieve. Um, you know, as an academic, I don't have so much to say about like who should the winners and losers be. Um, I, I think what I can sort of offer listeners is that they should expect that the losers will be these young Black and Hispanic Americans. Zach Bleemer, thank you for joining me on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. You bet. Good to talk to you, Alan. Now that we've heard from two experts with very different opinions about the real-world effects of affirmative action... Each of us is left to our own devices to decide what to believe. This reminds me of the time I was a juror in a case where an employee was suing his employer for an injury sustained while on the job. Each side provided multiple expert testimonies from doctors with fancy Ivy League degrees who came to wildly different conclusions about what caused the plaintiff's problems and what even those problems were. And there we were, us poor jurors with zero medical training, just common lay people, asked to decide whether or not this guy with a big bump on his head was going to get millions of dollars or not. Just like I discussed in our episode about the effects of minimum wage laws, after hearing all the experts give their best arguments and make their best cases, I always divert back to good old common sense to make my decisions. When I find a better way to make decisions which affect my life, I'll be sure to let you know. Zach and I spoke about meritocracy versus having a so-called seat at the table. 
I think it's an important subject worth reflecting on deeply. I'd like to end this episode with a children's story from Dr. Seuss, which I feel was written as an allegory on this very subject. The story was written in 1953 and was prescient in so many ways. Many scholars think the Sneetches was just about prejudice in general, and maybe it was. But I think there's a way to view the story as a commentary on the ways human beings go about sorting and unsorting themselves, and the so-called experts who make money off of both sides. The story in the Sneetches is simple. There are two types of Sneetches. One group has stars on the bellies, and the other group does not. The star-bellied Sneetches are the superior group, while those without stars are considered inferior. Because they have stars, all the star-bellied Sneetches would brag we're the best kind of Sneetch on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. One day, a salesman from out of town shows up, claiming to have invented a machine which can put stars on the bellies of any Sneetch willing to pay the $3 which the procedure would cost. He says this. My friends, he announced in a voice clear and keen. My name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean. I've heard of your troubles. I've heard you're unhappy. But I can fix that. I'm the fix-it-up chappie. I've come here to help you. I have what you need. And my prices are low and I work at great speed. And my work is 100% guaranteed. This story takes an interesting twist when the Sneetches, which originally had stars on their bellies, now want their stars removed so that they can be distinguished from the fake star-bellied Sneetches. Wouldn't you know it? Sylvester McMonkey McBean's machine can do star removal as well. However, star removal costs $10 each. So sorry. Then up came McBean with a very sly wink, and he said, things are not quite as bad as you think. So you don't know who's who, that is perfectly true. But come with me, friends, do you know what I'll do? I'll make you again, the best niches on beaches, and all it will cost you is $10 eaches. While most readers focused on the discrimination theme of this story, I always thought the most remarkable theme was really the character of Sylvester McMonkey McBean, who managed to make money from all sides of the very human behavior of sorting and unsorting people along all sorts of criteria. The story takes on slapstick comedic proportions as both types of Sneetches race in and out of the machine, getting stars put on, then off, then on again, then off again as the standards change. Until finally, with his truck full of cash and the Sneetches depleted, McBean leaves town. Then when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chappy packed up and he went. And he laughed as he drove in his car up the beach. They never will learn. No, you can't teach a sneech. Through the lens of today's subject, I see those stars on the sneech's bellies as Ivy League degrees. 
And Sylvester McMonkey McBean is the diversity, equity, and inclusion expert who drives into town selling us the solution to the sorting dilemma of human society. And while he gets rich, we fight each other and tear apart the social fabric. In March of this year, Netflix announced it had acquired the rights to Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches and will be producing it with an inclusive panel of writers and artists from diverse racial backgrounds. That Netflix would use racial preferences in deciding who to hire to produce the Sneetches is an irony that is truly beyond parody. As we find ourselves saying a lot these days, you can't make this stuff up. I'm Alan Wolin, and this has been Episode 19 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell Podcast. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to our 10-year-old Delancey and our 8-year-old Tesla for their brilliant renditions of Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And don't forget to order the world-famous Thomas Sowell Post-it Notes to help spread the genius of you-know-who. And if you really want to support our work, you can donate at patreon.com backslash Genius. Once again, that's patreon.com backslash Genius.